So uh, I'm going to read through this, and, and again, we, we've kind of been talking about this as we go through Revelation, but uh, the emphasis of Revelation is to see. John talks about what he sees. Um, and so I'd encourage you, if, if you don't have a, a Bible in front of you or don't have it a, a, up on your phone, I would encourage you to just kind of close your eyes and let your mind's eyes see what the scripture says today. So I'll read all of chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. With ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like this beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb. Who was slain. If anyone has a hear, anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone's, anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to this image so that the image might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this this time to be able to to come together and hear from your word and and to have it explained and clarified. And and Father, I pray that today as we go through this strange and in some places daunting and confusing place in scripture, God, I pray that you would help us to have a a sense of clarity and, and from that clarity, 
that we would have a sense of call, what you want us to do, what you are calling us into. And so, Father, as as we go through this, I, I pray specifically that you would give us a sense of endurance in our faith. Just as John calls us to here, that our faith would endure, would be made strong by having a sense of clarity around what can go on around us today. And so, Father, would you be our helper? I know it every single week, but specifically this week, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be our helper, would guide us into truth, and would help us to follow Jesus more faithfully in real life. And so toward that end, God, would you unite your power with my weak words and give us endurance together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are just weeks away from finishing our series in Revelation. And if you're new with us, I do see a ton of new faces today. Uh, I just want to call out the obvious. I do this a lot in this series, but I know that looking for a new church can be a strange thing. Uh, and then all of a sudden you walk into a church and they read from Revelation 13. Uh, and you're like, what have I gotten myself into? He ends the scripture reading with 666. Um, calm down. It'll be okay. Uh, all, all throughout the series, we've been going through this series because we believe that, that Revelation is not just this strange psychedelic trip of the Apostle John. Uh, it's not there for us to just calculate and try to fi- figure out what this means and who this is, but, but rather the book of Revelation in its original intent and for us today is written in order to help us have a sense of resilience in our discipleship to Jesus. When when times are difficult, when we feel like there's pressures around us, the book of Revelation exists in order to give us a sense of resilience, to know how to make it through. The book of Revelation is not something that we get our calculators and calendars out in order to figure it all out, but, but in many ways, Revelation is actually a discipleship manual. It helps us, it's it's written as a discipleship manual so that those who follow Jesus in pressing times can know how to endure. And that manual of discipleship that we're going through in Revelation is certainly helpful for what we're gonna cover today. So today we're, we're gonna look at chapter 13 and see some very urgent ways that Revelation seeks to inform and in some ways strengthen our discipleship to Jesus. And I just wanna give a warning here at the front Um, This is one of those messages where I'm going to have to give some warning. Uh, Last week was comforting and soothing and encouraging all around shame. Uh, This week is one of those ones that we're going to get into some stuff, but never let it be said that the cultural moment intimidated me. So uh, we're going to talk about scripture, okay? We're going to talk about it. We're going to preach it. All right, let's get in. Let's, let's, Let's jump in and see how this strange chapter actually helps us in our discipleship. So let's make sense of of what's going on. If you remember, if you were here last week, uh, chapter 12 introduces us to a symbolic figure of Satan. Uh, John identifies a, a red dragon. And after being thrown down by the victory of Jesus Christ, this this dragon goes on to torment Jesus' people through the use of accusation, accusation and shame. So what we covered last week, how shame unravels us as Christians and how the gospel can build us back up again. And, and chapter 12 ends with the image of this dragon standing on the seashore. That's what John says. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And in chapter 13, we see what? Satan, symbolized in the dragon, calls up two Fierce beast, one from the sea and one from the earth. 
And, and these beasts will in many ways function as his final assault on God's people in the letter of, letter of Revelation. After this, God really starts moving and begins to judge the beast and Satan. But this is kind of his last assault. And the description of the dragon in Revelation 12 is really interesting. Because on further reflection, we see that it actually mimics God the Father as he is described in Revelation 4. And then even more, the, the description of this beast of the sea mimics the description of Jesus the Lamb in Revelation 5. And then even further in, the second beast that comes from the earth mimics the description of the work of the Holy Spirit in Revelation 11. And so this final assault of evil on people starts off with trying to mimic who God is. This final assault on God's people sets up an unholy trinity in order to deceive and persecute God's people. But what in the world are they? <laughs> if this is Satan's final assault on God's people in Revelation, what in the world is all this mean? Is there a literal beast from the sea and earth that we can expect to see pop up one day? No. Just like the rest of the letter, John is using imagery to describe a reality. And although the imagery that describes these two beasts is, is strange to us, it wouldn't have been strange for these original hearers in Asia Minor. They would have picked up on symbols and images that actually would have, they would have picked up on. It's kind of like if you, were, if you were in the 1970s and you saw a political cartoon and you saw someone who had something on their chest that said Uncle Sam and a big hat and he was wrestling this bear that had a red sickle on him. What would you think that is? Okay, the commies, thank you, Spencer. Uh, and Uncle Sam would be America. You would know what it's trying to talk about. You, the, the, the imagery would not be strange. Obviously, if someone from another country or someone from another time saw that, they would be so confused around, what is this old man fighting this bear for? But, but for Americans in the 1970s, they would have quickly known what that means. Same is true for this. The imagery that John uses would awake these readers to what he was pointing toward. So what's, what's he pointing toward as he describes these beasts? So let's, let's, let's describe these and see what this is. And just put on your thinking caps with me for like 15 minutes, okay? Got it? Let's talk back. Got it? All right. Let's think. So the beast of the sea. If you've ever read the, the book of Job in the Old Testament, you, you've probably come across a beast from the sea already. Leviathan. In Job 40 and 41, there are actually two beasts that are described, and a beast that comes from the sea, named Leviathan, and a beast that comes from the earth, named Behemoth. And these two beasts actually show up consistently throughout the Old Testament, whether in, in name or in allusion. And in each of their usage outside of the book of Job, they are symbolic creatures meant to represent evil political empires that oppress God's people. The beast of the sea and the beast of the earth in the Old Testament is a symbol that constantly alludes to the dangers of evil political empires that seek to oppress God's people. But even more than that, the best place to look for an explanation for this beast of the sea is not Job, but actually the book of Daniel. By far, the book of Daniel is the most apocalyptic book in the Old Testament. It peels back the curtain more than any other book in the Old Testament. And now, I haven't really taken the time to point all this out to you as we've gone through Revelation, but Revelation alludes to or directly quotes the book of Daniel more than anything else from the Old Testament. 
The, the, the book of Daniel is in many ways what Jesus is using to kind of fire up the imagination and vision of the apostle John here. And that is certainly true in this section. So in Daniel chapter seven, verses one through 14, the prophet Daniel describes a, a dream he had of the, what was then the current king of Bab- Babylon, King Belshazzar. And in it, he describes a beast that he sees rise from the sea and the beast had four heads. The first beast had the, the head of a lion, the second a head of a bear, the third the head of a leopard, and the fourth, he says, was indescribable to him. <laughs> and as the dream of this, as the clarity of this dream is described in Daniel, these four heads of the beast that come from the sea are all shown to represent evil empires that have rejected the living God. And here in, in Revelation 13, I think it's easy to see the connection of the imagery, right? That's why I wanted to read the whole chapter so you could see, oh, he's talking about a beast that, that, that looked like a leopard and, and a bear and a, and a lion. The imagery very clearly connects. But here, different from Daniel, there's not four beasts, but one. It's as if now this beast from the sea has kind of collected into one great, large menace against God's people. And so from that, What is this beast of the sea meant to represent? What is the symbolism that this is pointing toward? It represents political power. But but not just any political power in general, but political power that has come under the influence of the dragon. The dragon there standing on the seashore calls up this beast from the sea so that it can manipulate it into oppressing and persecuting God's people. So John speaks of a dragon-manipulated political power that is exercised through human human kingdoms that have rejected the living God. And in fact, it it seems like the whole existence of this dragon-manipulated political power is to reject the living God. That's why he rises it from the sea. John says the beast uttered out all sorts of blasphemies against God and against his people. And he specifically goes after the people who belong to Jesus. And so evil, what John is trying to show here, is using political power and human kingdoms to oppress God's people. Satan will come into any political power or human kingdom that has set itself up against the living God. And not all political power, some political power is good. All of these days, it seems like there's no such thing as political power that is good, right? There is some political power that is good. Politics, in many ways, can be a grace from God that provides order and promotes flourishing, at least in its intent. But what John is trying to get us to see here is that when the power of the state sets itself up as its own source of power, its own self-existence, and rejects the living God, it becomes bestial. And eventually, the people of God pay the price. More on that in a moment. So that's the beast of the sea, an errant political power that evil influences in order to oppress and persecute God's people. But the beast of the sea is not alone, right? He has a helper in this text. John describes seeing another beast come from the earth, and in many ways, this beast of the earth supports and cosigns on the work of the sea beast. The beast of the earth is, is given authority to provide signs and wonders, 
so that people will all the more worship the beast of the sea. The earth beast is the propagandist of the sea beast. John shows that he performs signs and wonders so that people will actually worship the beast of the sea. The second beast even even makes an image of the first beast. They're working together. The, the, The second beast makes an image of the first beast and provides some strange breath so that the image itself seems to come alive. And then he makes it very difficult for those who will not worship that image of the beast. In fact, he even puts a mark on those who will, not, who will worship the beast. All imagery that is strangely reminiscent of what Jesus does when Jesus puts a seal on his people. And remember, the seal that Jesus puts on his people, as we've seen through Revelation, is the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to get you to see something here. As we went through that text and even through that short description, did you pick up on the religious overtones that cover what the beast of the earth does. Signs and wonders, gives breath almost as if the Holy Spirit, almost like the Holy Spirit does, makes this thing come alive, causes and forces people to worship the beast of the earth. Religious overtones. And even more so later in in chapter 16, 19, and 20, this beast of the earth is called a false prophet. In other words, the beast of the earth is meant to portray dragon-manipulated religious power and institutions that support and function as the propagandists of dragon-manipulated political power. Political power can be an enemy of discipleship to Jesus, but so can religious power. Religious power that moves to manipulate people to, to worship political power. That's what the beast of the earth does. The beast of the earth is dragon-manipulated religious power moving people to worship politics. I'm glad this sermon's not going to connect anywhere with current culture, right? <laughs> and then this beast of the earth is, he's very effective at what he does, right? He, he makes life miserable for those who will not worship the political power of the sea beast. And he does so by singling out those without the mark of the beast, and actually keeps them from buying and selling. In other words, he keeps them from the normal practices of daily life. Whoever does not have this mark of the beast is ostracized. And I know that that's a question that you've been waiting for me to get to this entire time in Revelation. What is the mark of the beast? I don't know. I'm just kidding. I, I think I know. I think I know. What is it? What is the mark of the beast? Well, well if you remember, Jesus himself, throughout Revelation marks his people as well. He, he puts a seal on his people, and so this is in many ways similar. And when Jesus marks his people, he does so by marking them with his own name and with the name of the Father, as, as chapter 14, verse one shows. When Jesus marks a person, he puts, their, he, he puts his name on them. Now, that, that doesn't mean that Christians have J-E-S-U-S on their foreheads or on their hands, right? Nobody here, nobody has that tattoo. That would be a really lame tattoo. Don't do that. And so what what I'm getting at is that the mark of Jesus, by putting his name on people, means that he is putting his character on people. Anytime throughout scripture when, when names are brought up, it's usually referencing to character. And so when Jesus marks his people, what that means is that he's, in, he's giving them the ability to be characterized by his own character. And the same is true for this. 
This mark of the beast is it's not a microchip. It's not a vaccine. It has nothing to do with the physical at all. But rather, it identifies those who are characterized by the sea beast. The, the mark of the beast is those who are characterized by the demonic influence on the political power of the sea beast. That's why it's on the, the forehead and the hand. That's why that symbol is there. Uh, you know, as a theologian and commentator, G.K. Beale says, he says, the forehead represents ideological commitment and the hand represents the practical outworking of that commitment. And so what is the mark of the beast? Who has the mark of the beast? It's anyone who is characterized by the dragon-manipulated political power and gives worship to that. It's to be characterized by demonic influence of power. That's the mark of the beast. And so in, in review, Revelation 13 is all about how Satan, represented in the dragon, uses oppressive political power, represented in the sea beast, in order to persecute and pressure Christians. And all this is supported by errant and false teachers of religion who give propaganda for the political power and seeks to make the followers of the beast carry the same character of the beast. That's a lot. You can take your thinking caps off now and take a breath. Let's take a breath together. Still strange though, right? We have some clarity, but it's, it's still strange. And, and what's strange is what does it mean for us? If Jesus is, is warning his people here, these readers of Revelation and us, that, that Satan will use political power in order to oppress his people and he will have that political power supported even by religious institutions, how does that connect with us? What do we need to see from this text in order for this to be an actual discipleship manual? Well, there's, there's two things that the Apostle John says almost in passing that I think give us a clue as, as to how we should receive all this strangeness and apply it to real life. First is, is there at the tail end of verse 10. John, after describing the first beast, says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. After John describes everything that errant political power will do in order to strip away the faith of these disciples, John says, so have some endurance. Keep going. After a sobering description of what happens when evil infiltrates human kingdoms, John just has one little word of encouragement here. Don't give in. Don't give in. Keep going. And now these Christians, these original hearers in Asia Minor were, were, were certainly tempted to give in. At the, time, at the time that the Apostle John wrote this letter, the beast of the sea had shown up in the form of Rome. Rome was the political power that had become bestial. And all those associated with the Roman Empire were expected to, to give their allegiance and trust to the empire. And John here shows that by setting itself up as divine, the human empire of Rome has actually become demonic. But if you were just a normal Roman citizen, walking the streets, doing your thing, you wouldn't have seen that demonic nature. This might not have been so obvious. Sure, there were some aspects of living under Roman rule that were certainly violent, and you'd think, this is not right, whether that was the violence of conquest or even the glorified violence of the gladiators. 
But the main appeal of Rome for the average Roman citizen that won people over in their trust was not mainly the intimidation of the empire, but rather the promised peace of the empire. Rome Rome operated under what was called the, the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. From the beginning, Rome set itself up as the savior nation of the world, that any nation or peoples who would come under their rule would be invited into peace. I mean, think about how appealing that would be for the average person back then. Back then, life was really dangerous, so you better have someone watching out for you. Life was really dangerous. You better have someone who will look out for you. And to have your Roman citizenship meant that someone was looking out for you. There were laws that would protect you from certain punishments, and, and your life could be protected because no one wanted to go against Rome. You don't touch a Roman citizen because then you go against Rome. The appeal of Rome was its peace, inviting people into safety. Rome was a master at assimilating people under their rule, not just because of the intimidation they had as the superpower of the world, but also because of the peace that they could offer. Submit to Rome, come under their rule, and you could have a life of peace. And the apostle John here is saying, don't do it. Don't buy it. To submit to Rome is to submit to the demonic forces at work. So wake up. Wake up to what's really going on here. See the inherent threat to your discipleship. And John says, don't give in. Accept the reality of punishment from Rome. Accept it. Accept that the empire being influenced by evil powers will come against you, will threaten you, will ostracize you, and will even kill you. But for the apostle John, he says, it's better for you to keep the faith and endure than for you to bow the knee and be deceived into thinking that the peace of the empire is worth the cost of your discipleship. That's John's warning around this beast of the sea. And the call is the same for us today. We don't have Rome, and we certainly don't see any strange beast coming up out of the sea. But we do have, what we do have is in many ways the same system and demand of assimilation. Listen, the the beast of the sea, the dragon-manipulated political empire, it's any political system that tells you to assimilate at at the cost of your faith. Become like us or get out. Assimilate or get out. which is pretty easy for us to to apply to us today now. (laughs) Listen, let's get real, okay? Let's get really, really frank. I don't believe that the entire American system is the beast. There are other governments throughout the world that better fit that description. Christians all across the world are being killed by political powers. There is nothing more dangerous to a Christian, not just today, but throughout history, than political power. More than religious persecution, political persecution has killed far more Christians and continues to do so today. All around the world. 
Christians are killed all around the world. There are better governments that fit the description of the beast. But I do believe that there are sections on the right and sections on the left that have become bestial, that have become like this. There are agendas that tell you to assimilate at the cost of your faith on the right and on the left. And just like Rome, they know how to get you to do that. Rome knew what people needed. They needed peace. And so we'll offer them this peace so that we can assimilate them into our empire. The same is true today. Political agendas know what you need and seek to offer it to you. Not necessarily safety and peace, but rather identity. Those who are involved on the, in this agenda are, know that you need a sense of identity and that they can assimilate you under their power and really in many ways cause you to abandon your discipleship to Jesus if they can give you a solid identity. Come, be a part of saving America. Be a real patriot. Identity. Come, be a part of our secular utopia. Come be one of the enlightened ones. Don't be a deplorable. That's identity. It's trying to get you to offer, it's offering you an identity But what they are offering you, in order to have that, you will need to strip down your discipleship. You can keep a little bit of that Christianity thing, but only insofar as it serves the agenda. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see, that both agendas have one thing in common. They cannot stomach a real, fully faithful disciple of Jesus. Neither side. The right commends you for your personal individual ethics, but can't stomach all that justice and mercy. The left commends you for your ethic of love and mercy as a Christian, but can't stomach that objective morality stuff. And the call for you today is to hold on. Endure in the faith. Recognize that you belong to King Jesus and that every political empire or agenda that offers you assimilation at the cost of your discipleship is demonic. I don't know how to put it in stronger words and I don't want to taper down what John actually says. Any political agenda that seeks to make you strip down your discipleship to Jesus is demonic. It's a strong warning for us today. Don't give in. Your commitment to your discipleship is going to have to be stronger than identity politics and all the whirlpool of media that tries to suck you in. And to have that strength, I think you'll need something else that the Apostle John calls out, which is wisdom. Look at verse 18. This, again, this is at the end of now the earth beast. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Behind the mark of the beast, this number is the most misunderstood thing in Revelation. (laughs) So what does it mean? Well, some view this as as a literal marker that we're supposed to calculate in order to identify the beast. 
And so to do this, uh, what, they, what they use is, is what's called uh, gematria. I don't really know how to say that. Uh, gematria is the system that kind of assigns certain numbers to certain letters in the alphabet. And so people try to, try to use that to identify who 666 belongs to. And, and throughout history, the, the closest candidate, if you use that system, is the old emperor Nero. But even then, there's a problem with that. If you use Nero's name in Greek, gematria doesn't come up with 666. In order to do that, you would have to do, what you'd have to do is take his name in Latin, transliterate it into Greek, and then trans, transliterate it into Hebrew, and then you would get 666. In other words, nothing that these original hearers could do. <laughs> nothing. They, they would not have understood. If John wants them to calculate the number, then none of them would have been able to do that. They were not educated enough to know Hebrew and Greek and Latin. And so gematria is not the way to go. Instead, we should deal with this number in the same way that we deal with every other number in Revelation. Remember that the numbers in Revelation are not, are not statistics, they are symbols. They are symbols, every single one of them, and we don't get to pick and choose which one's a symbol and which one is, which one is a statistic. They're all symbols. And the number six is one less than seven, right? Yes, one less than seven. Seven throughout the book of Revelation is the number used to symbolize wholeness or completeness, which means that six, being one less than seven, is not quite complete, not quite whole, lacking. And to have that number six three times in a row is meant to symbolize an incompleteness that is comprehensive, which means... Which means that this whole number of 666 symbolizes an incompleteness and a comprehensive lack. You guys are getting a lot of my list today, okay? <laughs> It's meant to symbolize a full incompleteness, a comprehensive lack. And John here says that what's, that's what best describes the beast at work. That the political and religious powers that seek to sway Christians away are at their core incomplete, at their core lacking. What they offer is not complete and is not worthy of the cost of your discipleship. And so John tells us to have wisdom to recognize all of this, to, to look at the political system of the day that demands assimilation at the cost of your faith and have the wisdom to see that what they are offering you is not complete. The trade-off of assimilating under the power, giving away your discipleship, that's foolishness. That's what John says. Be wise. Don't be swayed by all the pomp and thrill, all the promises and agendas. Recognize that at its core, it is lacking. And that anyone who strips down their discipleship in order to be assimilated is, fool, is, is being foolish. Be wise. Be discerning. Recognize the sheer limitedness of what is being promised. Revelation 13 is trying to get you to see the risk of placing your faith in political power trying to get you to see that there is no way to fully assimilate under one political power and still keep your faith. In order to do that, you will have to strip down your discipleship. 
Be wise. Let me ask you this. In all of this, and how it works itself out today, is your discipleship to Jesus strong enough to endure all of this? Like right now, your practices of following Jesus, of being in community with other disciples of Jesus, is it strong enough to endure this? It's going to have to be. There was a man in the uh, early 1900s named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a a German theologian and scholar. uh, And he, long story short, um, during the rise of Hitler, came to see how pitiful of of, of a response the church had. The church just totally assimilated under Nazi rule. And Bonhoeffer said, no. And so what Bonhoeffer did is that he actually developed a a small seminary in this place called Finkenwald. And in Finkenwald, there were some very intense pressure, intense practices around what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. And Bonhoeffer ran this whole thing and he would have certain schedules for everyone to do, for everyone to do and things to read and community to have. It was very intense. And and some of Bonhoeffer's friends and fellow scholars heard of what was going on at Finkenwald and kind of began to grow concerned. Why Why are you being so extreme? Why are you being so intense on these people? Discipleship is important, but man, breathe a little bit. And so what Bonhoeffer did is that he actually, he took one of his friends out with him uh, and went out onto what's called the Odor Sound uh, outside of Finkenwald. And on one side of the Odor Sound was Finkenwald, and on the other side, Bonhoeffer pointed out to him a Nazi training camp where Hitler had his troops training day after day after day. And there's this moment where Bonhoeffer is talking to his friend, and he says, this, the seminary, must be stronger than that. Bonhoeffer recognized that in order for disciples of Jesus to make it under what was then the Nazi rule, discipleship had to be stronger than how Hitler was even training his his troops. And the same is true today. This, this right here, it's got to be stronger than that. (laughs) All the ways that our culture tries to shape you, inform you, and it's not all bad. Listen, I'm not a, pari- I'm not a social pariah who thinks we, ju- we should just close ourselves off to the world, not in any way. But the areas of culture that is trying to shape you, that will do all, its, all it can to move you away from your discipleship to Jesus. If you're gonna make it through that, Your discipleship practices need to be strong, friends. This is my, this is my pastoral concern all the time, is that we still think that we can can just skate by. We still think that following Jesus and making it to the end. It's gonna have some barriers, gonna have some pain. It's gonna be hard, like trying to wake up in the morning and read your Bible. But that's the most of what we think about is a barrier to following Jesus. That's not true, friend. I wanna warn you 
that following Jesus, if you're gonna make it, you've gotta take it seriously. You gotta see we can't, we can't skate by any longer. We can't skate by on just a really moving Maverick City worship concert. We gotta have practices in our life that are stronger than everything else that's trying to sway you away. And that's what I want you to reflect on today. As evil tries to use political power to get you to strip down your discipleship. As there are fools who will use religious power to support that political power. Are your discipleship practices strong enough to withstand that? Is your wisdom, is wisdom there so that you can know what's false and what's real? What's lacking and what's whole? I warned you that it would be a, a strong word of warning. And I really just want to leave it there. I want you to reflect and think. I want you to self-assess and have in many ways the Holy Spirit show you the ways in which following Jesus needs to be bolstered. So that this and this is stronger than everything else that's trying to sway you away. So let's pray and we'll be silent and reflect. Father, God, would you would you forgive me of the ways that I give in to cheap discipleship. Would you forgive us for every way that we've made following, just kind of bought into this lie that following you is it's just kind of a, a compartmentalized piece of our life. And, and we kind of feed that part every now and then at church, every now and then at community group, and occasionally reading our Bible, but it's not something that is comprehensive for our whole life. Father, would you forgive us? Would you give us your grace? And, and God, would you give us the, the conviction and the strength of your Holy Spirit to double down on following your son? To say that I know what's at risk if I don't take this seriously. And so I'm gonna follow after you. I'm gonna choose to serve you. God, would you give us that grace? Would you make us into disciples that can endure, that can make it through, God? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.